0: Good morning, church. Today, excuse me, today we're going to be reading Romans 8, 1 through 11. Romans 8, 1 through 11. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, through His Spirit, who dwells in you.
1: Thank you, Justin. Good morning. I can't tell you how... I don't know what the right word is, but what a joy it is to stay with you. How edifying it is to my spirit. I have good news and an announcement to make this morning. Uh, Some of you have... uh, uh, are aware of this, um, but I merely mention it now just to uh, bring to you guys' attention. Uh, The first part is this, Brandon and Lisa are leaving. Uh, That's not the good news. Um, uh, uh, I would say that I was incredibly encouraged with you yesterday of how many of you guys participated in supporting Brandon and Lisa yesterday. Uh, I think that they're overwhelmed at the... uh, The army of reliance behind them. And we will miss you when God sends you. Uh, As elders, we have, uh, it was about a year ago, we sat down with them and contemplated what could happen, which is now near to us than we realize, um, about them going on to the mission build. As elders, we anticipate that with excitement, but then also with grief, because Lisa has done an incredible job over the last six, seven years of cultivating a culture of congregational worship, which her, her teams, and clearly as we saw this morning, enjoys doing together. And one of those things is that as a result of that will be Lisa, because she's going to be on the mission field. We contemplated cloning, seeing that that is a biblical option, and that's something that we don't think we could operate with in a year's time worth, so we're not going to do that. <laughs> We would send the clone with Brandon. Um, (laughs) I got sidetracked. I'm sorry. That's my sense of humor. Um, And so as we were thinking through, you know, last year, God has done a lot with Reliance, even with adding this space. And as, as as you know, as you know, we want to grow our congregation to the opportunity that we could start, if God would allow a church plant. And so as... This last year unfolded. We were try, we as elders contemplated what would we need in staffing in order for that to do, be done well. And so, with Lisa transitioning over, we have decided to replace her position with a more full time position, which will take off some of the responsibilities that I would have every week, and also many of the things that I don't want to do that I have handed off to Adam that individual will be uh, responsible to carry those responsibilities as well. So we started discussions in September, October, discussing more November, what that position would look like. And so we have established a position called Worship and Community Life, in which will uh, free up Adam and some of the things that he's been doing over the last seven years. He's going to start, hopefully, in September with a job description that will be much more narrower than uh, doing everything that Jacob doesn't want to do. But we want to free up Adam to pursue and guiding and discipling this church, whether it be from small groups to special classes, small, small group evenings, or whatever, we want him to be free and write curriculum designed for whatever small group or Sunday school class that we have free him up to do those things for our church to cultivate the discipleship ministry as he has done very well and be much more effective starting in September. I say all this, starting in January, we send out the position. And there has been one name that has floated to the top since that time. And we have been in discussions for well over a month. And the connection in which when we hire somebody from outside of the church, that can be, as we all know, I don't know if it's risky, um, but there's an unknown if you don't know somebody. But as a result of our relationships with the church in Colorado, uh, Adam has uh, uh, an individual that he has been able to watch for years, and his name is Greg, and has a heart's passion for uh, missions, for worship, for community life, and it just has felt like a good fit. And he has a passion for leading worship congregationally, Lisa has interviewed him, and uh, she, I can say this, right? She said, I wanted to hire him, and I said, no, that's my job, <laughs> and so he is going to be here, and to, on September, when is he going to be here? On the 18th, so, so I, I'm asking you guys to be on your best behavior, um, I say, let's wear our ties that Sunday and let's misrepresent. <laughs> no, okay, no, okay, no, we won't. We'll make him wear a tie. Um, this will be an opportunity for us to get to know him and for us to be able to, for him to get to know us and uh, and for us to get to know him. And so um, I would pray that you would set that time to be able to, that Sunday, to be able to be here and to enjoy him and his wife, Katie, and to love upon them as they consider This position. So we're excited. You will love him. And uh, it's really hard to find people that understand congregational worship. It is very hard to find people that recognize in worship that you are the instrument and that we play, the musicians, play a part in guiding and lifting your voices to exalt God. And uh, there's a element of professionalism that exists within that, but then there's also an element of recognizing that we as the people are the voice of God which exalts Him, and leading people to do that is such a joy, and so we are excited and grieved about this Lisa going on and then Greg possibly taking that position. So uh, yeah, you guys got it down on your calendar, and uh, with that, let's turn our attention to God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, you have been gracious indeed for reliance. These people have been generous. Not just uh, in their regular fellowship, love and devotion towards one another. This brings me great joy as a pastor to see a congregation love a family that is going to go international with the gospel. Lord, I pray that as they go with the confidence of the gospel, that we as well would uh, pray regularly for them. We know there are days of trouble ahead, but Lord, we pray that you would protect them as they proclaim the confidence they have in Christ to a world, to a community that desperately needs to hear Christ as literally rose from the grave, so that they might hope in him and find the joy of that. And as we consider a passage for us here in Tri-Cities, It speaks of these things, Lord, I pray that we would be devoted to this ministry of the gospel, which we are not ashamed of. In Jesus' name, amen. We have gone through significant portions now, almost halfway through the letter of Romans. And Paul is starting to ramp up his excitement. But he has just concluded in the previous chapter, where sin dwells, there is death. And He has now ramped our attention or drawn our attention to this truth where the Spirit dwells. There is life. What an incredible opportunity for us as a church to reflect on these words in light of Resurrection Sunday next week. I was reflecting on this passage knowing that Resurrection Sunday is next week. I remembered that even Good Friday... Last year, and Resurrection Sunday, we didn't get to celebrate together, did we? We were in our home. And I remember now thinking like, man, and Brandon said it best, in light of all of these events that we experienced being canceled last year, events like birthdays and Resurrection Sunday and Christmas have lost a little bit of their excitement. I remember now that we once had just two years ago. And so what I would like to do is just to draw our reflection on what Paul brings us so that we, when we sing next week, we sing with the great delight and joy of what we hope in. Christ, who rose from the dead, literally, has become our hope. It was actually the first sermon when Peter, the one after when the Holy Spirit indwelled him, he went before the same crowd that said, crucify crucify Christ, he went and preached his first message. He almost like sticks his finger at the crowd when he says in Acts chapter 2 verse 23 through 24 this man, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end into the agony of death, and he says, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. There is no doubt, if we were to reflect just over the last year, we have seen, not, not the reign of death, but we have witnessed this last year, the power of death. But for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, as Paul is going to labor before us here, those who are in Christ have recognized death has met its match. And besides Christ, if you reflect even on these words, no man on the face of the earth has been able to confront death with such confidence. Just real quickly. Referring back to his own life, it was Jesus who said to the crowds, No one has taken it away from me, my life, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. If you think about Christ as he lived his ministry, one thing that he was never fearful of, it wasn't death. In fact, if you ever spend time reading the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is a prominent issue with humanity and a problem that we all face. If you've read Genesis, rather I should say, if you've read the genealogies of Genesis, there's a word that pops up rather frequently. In fact, many of us just skim over it, right? But as a result of sin entering the world through Adam, Adam lived, and the genealogies say this, Adam lived, and then he died. Seth lived, and then he died. Enosh lived, and died. And then he died. Kenan lived. Mehalah lived. Jared lived. Methuselah lived. Lamish lived. And they all died. All of history has experienced the one thing sin entered through Adam, and through sin, death. And through Adam up to Christ, everyone has experienced the same result. And it's interesting with Christ, knowing. The incredible re- uh, record of death, Jesus, yet in light of that record, was never fearful of death. Destroy this temple? I'll raise it up in three days. Pilate, you remember Pilate? He tries to threaten Jesus with death. He's asking him questions. Pilate asks Jesus, where are you from? In John chapter 19, verses 9 through 11. Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said to him in verse 10, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you, meaning give you life, and have the authority to crucify, which means to give you death? Jesus' response, You have no authority over me unless it has been given you from above. Jesus was never threatened nor fearful of death. And so when Paul turns our attention, we're going to see why Christ had such confidence when it came to conquering the unbeatable record of death. In fact, the men, the angels who saw the women come up to the tomb on that resurrection Sunday were kind of bewildered why they were even there. Remember, Luke chapter 24, verses 4 through 5. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. They came to the tomb. Saul was empty, wondered what in the world is going on. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? There is a confidence For those who are in Christ Jesus, when it comes to the ultimate issue we all face, which is death. And Paul presents it before us today. And so what I want to do is to delight in that. But before we delight in that, I want to remind us of what Paul has already done for us. Because this issue started in chapter 5. And he has tried to plead with us in his writings, where sin dwells, there is death. And he's going to teach us here this morning where the spirit dwells, there is life. That'll be our second point. But just to to remind ourselves of what Paul has been doing. Point one, where sin dwells, there is death. This is an important issue. Because we go to workplaces, we live in families, we go to schools, we live in this community, and the issue that we know that all people are going to face is this issue. Where sin dwells, there is death. No exception. And this is what Paul has been trying to labor on for us as the readers. It's in Romans chapter 7. It's interesting in chapter 8. Paul chooses to use a word at this point only six times. For those who are in sin, he uses the phrase dwell three times. And where sin dwells, there is death. In Romans chapter 8, he uses the other three times. Where the Spirit dwells, there is life. And he puts those terms in contrast. won't read all of them for the sake of time. But just to remind you, Even though the law for a Jew recognized it was holy, righteous, and good, how valuable it was to give them a guidance towards life, those where sin dwelled were tormented by the reality that they could not accomplish what the law presented before them. Remember, you read with me in Romans 7, verses 12, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. But where sin dwells, there is death. And he says this in verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Law doesn't produce this result. No, may it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death. Through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. We recognize where the sin dwells, as we read the rest of Romans chapter 7, where sin dwells, it controls the individual to only accomplish that which the sin desires. For I I know nothing good dwells in me. This is verse 18. That is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. I can't do it because something is controlling me. It is taught, as what Paul has said, where sin dwells, there is power. Even if I wanted to, it is overpowered by this issue of where sin dwells within me. And finally, where the sin dwells, it has held me literally, as Paul would reflect, is his previous unbelieving position as a Jew. He's stuck in a prison. I find that the principle that evil is in in me, the one who wants to do good and can't, he's stuck that he ultimately recognizes where the sin dwells results in death, that he comes to this final conclusion. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Where sin dwells, this is what Christians, Christianity or Christians must not waver on. Where sin dwells is death, the result is death. And we should be very familiar with this language because he doesn't just use it in chapter 7 and 8. For where sin dwells, there is death. For the wages of sin is death. For the mind set on the flesh is death. Over and over, Paul puts this before the reader. So how will a man be saved from this body of death where sin dwells? The only hope is that your heart might be cleansed and renewed and there might be a new dwelling in which Paul has now labored and says in the victory, chapter 8, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For where the Spirit dwells, there is now no more condemnation, which is point two. I want to prepare our hearts because there is a table in front of us. And as a result of what we recognize, what Christ has done for us, we participate in fellowship with God, with one another, for what God has done in our lives because We have been saved from sin and been transformed into a new dwelling in which now the Spirit rules. And this is what is so fascinating what Paul brings before us. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Where the Spirit dwells, there is life. Hope you've tracked with me thus far. "Where Where sin dwells, there is death, but where the Spirit dwells, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Something has happened. If indeed the Spirit of God, and he's going to put before us the first dwell. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he makes a clarification here. He does not belong to him nicodemus remember the confusion that he had you're saying that i must be born again in order to have eternal life it was the samaritan who asked jesus how do, where are we supposed to worship and christ says to her you must worship the lord in new spirit in a spirit it's not the issue of the flesh it's the issue that there needs to be the dwelling of the spirit within you not where because the issue that you have right now is sin now dwells within you but Paul has said as a result of faith and what Christ has accomplished in conquering sin and death that now you are not in this in sin you are now this is incredible in the spirit and I want to labor here just for a second because what Paul does here is interesting you are not in the flesh what are you in the Spirit. So you have yourself in the Spirit, but there's this mutual agreement between you and the Lord, Lord in which the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God, if you're in the Spirit, where is God? He is in you. And there's this mutual relationship now now exists with you and God. You all know when you grew up, when you had that friend, oh, let's just say it, the younger brother or the younger sister, in which mom would say, hey, by the way, take your sister or take your brother. And you would say, oh, mom, that was a forced relationship that as you took them to the park that you were doing it out of obligation. And as a result of obligation, there wasn't real mutual, maybe there was some level of love and appreciation, but it was obligational love. This is not what Paul's talking about. If you're in the Spirit, there's great delight for God to be in you. And if that's true, this element in which Paul declares in Romans 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation in the, for those who are in Christ Jesus, is a victory statement. I remember pastors often feel the weight. I don't know, maybe it's a church planner thing, but I remember. As Adam and I moved here and we began the ministry, we participated in a couple church planning events where they would draw church planners together. And as a result of that, the intent was to encourage church planners in what they're doing. And it became obvious, something, issue in me, that as you began to go to these events, you tend to compare where God is taking somebody else's ministry in light of where you're at in your pursuits and God is working through your ministry. And I remember often feeling guilty because we weren't as far along as I thought God would want us to be, or really, how far I wanted to be. And one day, at one of these events, a pastor got up and he said this simple statement God loves you so much. I'm thinking, okay, I know that. Duh. And there is nothing more that you could do to make him further love you. And I remember thinking, now, I have heard that so much. But we tend to put, uh, uh, in our relationships, like, expectations... And at that moment, I realized the result of what Christ has done for me and the result in faith in Him. There is nothing more that I could possibly do to make God love me more. For the Spirit is in me, and I am in the Spirit. And it's to my advantage, as Christ would have said in John, that this might be so to delight in. And God delights in Him whom He has saved. And this is something we often realize, ought to realize, how we relate to one another, which we will get to as we understand later in our third point. However, I just want you to notice how often the Spirit of God shows up in this text. You can almost see it eight or nine times. If you underline it, you'll see it's used repetitively. As Paul is trying to say, something has changed. Sin does not dwell. The Spirit dwells now in you. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, verse 9. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Verse 10. When the Spirit of God dwells in you, look what Paul says. If Christ is in you. Ah, it would have been amazing indeed to be able to see the ministry of Christ. And how we underestimate the gift we have received by the Spirit. To have the Spirit is to have Christ. You can know Christ because He is now in you. That though the body is dead because of sin, every Christian recognizes the consequences of sin. Having sinned dwell within us, there is a consequence of death. Yet, however... The Spirit is life or alive because of righteousness. And here is the hope set before us. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, and here is His third or second occurrence of the word dwell, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give you two things. Life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Meaning, the life that you presently have, even though sin once dwelled in you and you're waiting for your glorified resurrection and hope, the Spirit can enable you to walk with the new mindset that we understood last week. You're not a prisoner to sin anymore. It no longer controls you anymore. The Spirit of God has retuned reset your mind to the things of Him which you now can be delighted in. And as a result of that, the time that you now have on this life can be pleasing to God if you live in Christ. And so if you would allow me, when Paul uses the word dwell here, it's transformative, especially for the Jewish audience. Because historically, where did, this, where did the Lord dwell physically? The Jew recognized when God delivered them out of Egypt... He set in motion the means by which God, the one who is in the heavens, could dwell with the Israelites. And it was Moses that was set aside to set up the, the, the procedures and the individuals to craft the building of the tabernacle. And Exodus ends with the tabernacle uh, being filled with the glory of God. And another way that we could translate or, uh the scribe, the tabernacle, is the dwelling place of God in the midst of the nation of Israel. And so, when Paul says these words, for a Jew who's leaving Judaism to enjoy Christianity, they're coming to realize this truth the temple's not as valuable as it once we thought it was. It now, God now dwells within the human being. And Paul labors on, not just in this letter, but elsewhere, to pull these promises from the old testament to show God did not set his mind at just dwelling and building. It was his in delight that he might dwell within his creation, humanity. So in Second Corinthians, Paul used this language in chapter six, verse sixteen. For we are the temple of the living God. is where God dwelled. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. If we can understand this reliance, when we get to our convictional response in a few minutes, this will change the way you live. If God dwells not in buildings anymore, but within those who respond to Christ, it will change the way that you see the world in front of you and the brother and sister in Christ before you. In which he also pulls this promise out of Ezekiel. There was this covenant, this what we call the new covenant made in the Old Testament. I'll just read one of the passages. You could go to Jeremiah, but I'll go to Ezekiel. Chapter 37, verses 26 and 27, long ago God made this promise, I will make a covenant peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst. And my dwelling place will also be with them, and I will be their God, and they will Be my people. This is really, really exciting news. Not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. There is a reason why we do not make journeys every year to Jerusalem to worship God. There is a reason why we gather on a Sunday morning to declare the greatness of our God. And not in Jerusalem. Why? Because we dwell in the Spirit. And where the Spirit dwells, we have life. And if we recognize this, this brings an exciting opportunity in our gathering, something is being accomplished. Consider another, 1 Corinthians 3:16 through 17. Do you not know? Well, Paul's dealing with a congregation? that does not know. And we should, too, know this. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Wow. So God will come towards your, towards your vindication if someone harms the one whom he dwells in. This will change the way, as Paul will later say, don't take vengeance for vengeance. Stands with God. And if the Spirit of God dwells within you, he's my judge. He'll take care of it. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, saintly, right? Whether something has been changed, for sin does not dwell within us, which produces death. Now the Spirit dwells within us, which moves us to life. That is what you are. We have life. I just want to reread it again, so you can see it. Some of this may not be on the, yeah, Romans 8, 1 through 11. Can you just read it with that mindset? Because... The Jew had a problem. What do we do with the Mosaic law? Paul in chapter 7 has answered that question. The law was inaugurated so that sin would be further revealed unto you and show you. Its trajectory in you is towards death. If you have any hope, you need the Spirit of God to dwell within you. For if sin dwells in you, wretched man that I am. But if the Spirit dwells in you, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life is Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, has set you free from the law, which would produce this issue of condemnation. You are free from the law and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Because what God has did, He has done, He has sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned our sin in His flesh, and so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And we do not walk according to sin anymore, which produces death. We don't walk according to to the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, and there's this whole transformation now. The mindset of those who are in Christ has now been changed. For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. Those where sin dwells, those who are in the flesh, cannot please God comes to these eloquent verses in 9 through 11 which have been set before us today to say these things you're not in the flesh you're in the spirit and the spirit is in you indeed the spirit of god dwells in you but if anyone does not have the spirit of christ he does not belong to him what makes us different from the rest of the world not you it's what dwells within you the spirit of god And if Christ is in you, though we recognize the body is dead because of sin, we will experience death. But yet the Spirit is life, alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. We as Christians should recognize what makes us so different from those from the rest of the world. For a Christian recognizes. We don't boast in our righteousness. Or anything that is good within us. We boast in whom dwells within us. Which is Christ. The spirit of God. Which brings us to our convictional response. Point three. The way that we think through these things. Thank you. I know that's theology. And theology. if it's When we understand it correctly. Should result. And practical living, and how we have dressed the world in front of us. I hope if, if you've read, maybe spend this week reading, re-reading Romans one through eight. And if you do, you're going to recognize how labor, how intentional Paul t- sets these two world positions apart from one another. You're either in Adam, or you're in Christ. You're either in sin. Or you're in Christ. You're either under the law or under grace. He doesn't see a mixing in the middle. And you'll find with the other apostles, you're either of one worldview or another worldview. Or to use kingdom theology, you're of the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God. There are no middle grounds or walking the fence line. You're either on one side or the other side. Either you're a slave to sin or you're enslaved to God. Either you're a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. And what he has said here in Romans 8, either you're in the flesh or you're in the spirit. This is why Paul elsewhere can say, examine yourself. Because you should be able to know where you're at. This is why John will write, the children of God and the children of Satan are obvious. This is why Christ can teach. You can tell a follower by their truth. I've often wondered if it would be helpful, even in light of the last, man, five to ten years, maybe it would be good for reliance, even to reflect on what is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world that we live in. What is the church and what is the other realm? For we tend to treat our relationships with one another and we don't see the sharp contrast which the scriptures put before us. And this is why Paul will say to the Christian audience who goes out into the midst of a perverted world, he reminds them who they are. You're not one of them, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation. A people for God's own possession. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. Who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous life. For you once were not a people. You once were sin-dwelled. But now you are the people of God where the Spirit of God dwells. And you have not received. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. Everything. Life Death and life determines on where the sin dwells or the spirit dwells, is what Paul is concluding. And this is why John will write, and this is how we have to be very careful. We are a very individualistic society. So we receive the gospel individually, which is true. And we recognize the spirit as a result of this faith in Christ the result is the Spirit of God dwelling in me that we so sometimes so individualize that experience to mean that that's my experience and none of yours. This is why Paul will, or John and Paul, Peter, will caution. Christian, the way you speak to one another, you must be very careful. Because when you address someone else who's in Christ, you're speaking to whom we're God. Well this is why John will say, Beloved, if God so loved us, me, each and us, each and one of us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And so by this we know, we can know, if we're in the flesh or in the Spirit. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. Do you want to know if you're a Christian? John writes these things in his letter so that, that you might know that you are of, his, of the children of God. If you want to know if you are a follower of Christ, you can determine that fruit by the way that you love the beloved and so often we can treat our church experiences hour and 15 minutes as something for me but I sing also for you and you sing also for me we serve one another not because it's something that we get out of it it's an expression of our love for one another What's so exciting, what I think happened yesterday with Brandon and Lisa, was not just some moral opportunity, but a deep response of love for another person. And as a result, it gives me great joy as a pastor to say, keep doing it. Because the world will know Christ for our love for one another. And yes, indeed, you can see the hostility increased even as time progresses even how the world can try to solve its relationships. But as time progresses, the church should see a deeper appreciation even in the midst of a perverted world of love for one another as an expression of what the Spirit is doing within us. And so when we come into conflict, we recognize that this is why we seek reconciliation with one another. This is what God did for us. And this is what the table is set here for us to consider. Is that Paul even warned, if you don't love your brother, don't take up this. Wow. Because I often think of the table to think about, okay, how am I doing between you and God? Well, that's part of it. But what about the beloved? Where am I at with them? If you want to know, like, How you're doing with God, you look to your brothers. A husband knows this. A wife knows this. You want to know your relationship with God? Just look how your relationship is with your spouse. How do you work through issues? If the Spirit of God dwells in your spouse, the way that you treat one another is a direct response to what the Spirit is doing with you and God. Peter warns this, right? Men, your prayers are just hitting the ceiling. That's Jacob's paraphrase. Because you're not even treating your wife with honor whom were the Spirit to Now that's, that's recognizing the difference between the world and the church. We have an obligation to one another, but what gets lost over time, if you would just allow me just a few more minutes before we go to the table, what gets lost over time is the church is working out its issues with one another. It forgets sometimes how it's supposed to respond to the world, right? So the world will respond to one another with aggression towards one another, because that's what sin does. It, produces what? Death, right? But our response to the world is we were once enemies of God. But God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We don't have an attitude of hostility towards the world whose where sin dwells. We have a, a hope. And this is why Paul will elsewhere say we are ambassadors for Christ. And as we are ambassadors to Christ, as we go out into the world, into our families, our schools, and our workplaces, we proclaim Christ so that the hope that we have might become their hope. And it's like this invitation to this whole new kingdom that works through their issues, that loves one another, that is willing to sacrifice for one another. And it's this invitation to repent and be participants of what God is doing in His kingdom, in which where the Spirit of God dwells and we respond compassionately. One of the reasons why Reliance puts before you regularly ministries of involvement in this city is where we ask the simple question, God, what do you need in this city? And what ministries have you established in this city that we can send our people to serve this community in light of the gospel? There's a reason why we put before you regularly Mirror Ministry, Grace Kitchen, Young Lives. uh, We got You Medical and the list could go on and on and on. And I pray that God would produce even more opportunities for us to serve with compassion, go into this world with what the gospel has done and so that we can invite the world which where sin dwells and show them the love of Christ which gives life to their mortal bodies. Because the result of it, if you think about it, you think about it, the, the church is so fundamentally more capable to respond to the issues of the world that we face today than the world. Why? the world where the sin dwells they have one life paul presents us if you die you get out we we don't have a fear of death you can watch the world how does this respond to its issues you'll find a few that will give their time but it's the culture i would suspect is more let's just throw money at it Reality is, is that the church recognizes that we can give up our time because this is not what we have. And we can serve sacrificially, knowing that God is going to raise us up and we inherit eternal life. And so the time that we have now, we're not worried about building houses that are unnecessary. We're not worried about building storage centers to protect things that we want to possess. Rather, we're people that just want to get rid of everything and live for the next. Living our time wisely, inviting those from the world into the spirit of life. And if we understand that principle, I think we're ready for Resurrection Sunday. We need to be compassionate towards this world. Because you were once there. We don't have to agree with what the world is doing. No, God is actually quite clear. We should not agree with the things that which sin produces. But we can be compassionate. And we can be caring, we can be heist in the midst of a perverted world. And so as you stand with me before the table as you sit, you can either sing the song with us this morning or reflect. I've put two things before you of convictional response. Do you love God? have you responded to him? and as a result of your relationship with God, do you love the beloved? Have you held resentment? To hold resentment towards another is to hold resentment to where the spirit dwells in another. This is why Matthew will say, before you take the table, before you do worship, go reconcile. How are you doing with the relationships that God has given you? Two, how are you in light of your compassion for the world around you? How are you using your time? Is it being used in a compassionate nature, but living by the Spirit? For Christ did not come to be served, but to And if I were to give you an evaluation of reliance, I think that we have done well. We not, must not become calloused with our time, always evaluating, God, where do you want me next? I would love to see more people in the foster system I would love to see more people involved in Grace Kitchen, You Medical, Mirror Ministry, Me Reaching Refugees. I would love to see our people always responding compassionately to the world which is in Christ's cities. And when we do that, seeing the unique privilege of sharing Christ to this world and inviting them into what Christ has given to offer them. With those two things before us, I'd ask you to consider how are you doing with the other beloved in which the Spirit dwells and how are you using your time? Lord, we are thankful. We recognize that once where the Spirit, or excuse me, once where the sin dwelled, there was death. But now where the Spirit dwells, we have life. You have changed our mindset. You've given us the opportunity to recognize that it's better to lose all things and to gain Christ. And Lord, I pray that we recognize that uh, we should take the table respectfully and humbly, cautiously, and uh, Lord, I pray that if there is any lack of forgiveness or resentment towards another beloved Lord, I pray that we would be responsive now. Please forgive us when we sin against one another. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people that would be Willing to forgive immediately. But that is what you have done for us. And that is the joy of the church that we recognize those things are only accomplished. Because that is where the spirit dwells and enables us to do such thing. And Lord as we even consider with the time that we have. We recognize that the life that you have given us is temporary. We wait for the kingdom of God to be fully realized when you return. But Lord we do want to use our time wisely. Let us be faithful. Great stewards of the time that you've given us, seeing every opportunity to serve this community with the hope of sharing what Christ has done us done for us so that they also might enjoy life. And Lord, as we contemplate these two things, Lord, I pray that as we wait together to take them together, that this would be honoring to you. In Jesus' name. Love the servers come up.